You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. They they do they do a lot of good writing, which they we're sure going to be we're going to be talking about today. Uh, what a segue! I know, right? Very smooth segue. So I just have to do one more little thing here. And Patience is a virtue. Yep, I just got to get a copy paste on uh, this here this here link and put it out on Twitter, which I've gotten better at. Ah, so I've heard you got forty followers now. Oh, oh, we lost one. We lost one. We're back down to thirty nine. Damn, everything hurts. Someone please follow us on Twitter. Please. Was this at 3DMs podcast or at 3DMs pod? Yep. Uh, Three spelled the old-fashioned way. Yep. (laughs) These are really the kind of things you should set up more than 10 seconds in advance, aren't they? Yeah. You know, it's – well – What are you going to do? If I don't have the video link, I can't tweet it out. It's true. Killers composed uh, whatever. I'm not going to beat on this dead horse anymore. Uh, so how all you fine ladies and gentlemen doing out there this week? Mm, I don't know. We're going to find out in a second. I'm not even not even looking at our chat right now. And we can't find out because our chat window on Facebook isn't open, I don't think. but Okay. The tweet's been sent. There we go. Now it's open. The chat window's up. Ah. All right. Well then. Encoders are fired up. The mics are hot. Are they locked? Yep. Excellent. Let's play the fight song. Wait. That's not promising. Nope. Hang on. We're going to do this again. Come on. Come on. Uh-oh. Oh, that's really bad. Uh, Maybe this one? Uh-oh. Hmm. <laughs> that's not promising. No, that's really uh, bad. Can can are you sure we can be heard? Um, I, you know, bring up the stream real quick, Paul. One second. Come on, stop fighting me. Let's see. It's like Moss had something to say. We gonna find out. Audio is fine. Okay. All right. Well. So it's just the uh, it's just the fight song not wanting to play. Thanks, SNM. Well, should we just start then? No. Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the 3DMs podcast, everybody. Our theme music didn't want to play this week, and we ain't got time because we run on a very tight schedule around here. Uh, I'm Jake, joined as per usual by Paul. Good afternoon. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about a very esoteric but interesting and necessary topic uh, for- i would actually give it a 6.5 in the esoteric scale out of 10 but it's decently esoteric compared to what we've talked about before yeah and uh doesn't require any books or anything this is just more for dms new to the game who get intimidated by probably the uh the part of dming you think about the most which is telling a story we're talking about storytelling today and we're going to do the we're, we're just going to cover the general basics. Yeah, this we'll, is obviously something that doesn't even necessarily apply to just d d This applies to any role-playing game you're telling a story for, whether it be Shadowrun, Dungeons & Dragons, Vampire the Masquerade, anything like that. But let's, uh, you know, let's get down to brass tacks here on how to put together a great story for your players to enjoy. So first thing you are going to do uh, when it comes to putting a game together is obviously you're going to find some friends. Hey, you want to play D&D? Great. I want to run D&D. Sweet. We've covered that step. Awesome. Boom. Moving on. Um, 
we're presuming that you have some type of plot, some story you want to run, um, be it a pre-bought adventure or be it your own homebrew. This is definitely going to focus more on your homebrew stuff because obviously there's a story in a pre-bought adventure. If you've bought a pre-adventure already pre-done for them, I don't know why you're talking to us here. But. Well, I, there's definitely some info from this that can be gleaned because players can be fickle creatures and we're going to be working with that today. Um, so we've done all that work. You've figured out what kind of story you want to tell and we – Sit everybody down, and we're going to talk about doing session zero really quick and what you're trying to get out of a session this zero. This is sort of a recap. Well, not some sort of recap. as an actual cap for the stuff we talked about in the last couple series of episodes about session zero stuff. But basically, the long and short of it is you need to talk to your players and figure out what exactly you're going to be doing in this game. Because if everybody comes in expecting a comedy game and you're running a Game of Thrones-style political thriller – Everybody's not going to have the best of times. Yeah, nobody's going to have a good time. If you pizza when you're supposed to French fry, nobody's going to have a good time. So um, obviously set expectations when you talk to your players first. Boom, easy, done, quality stuff. Part two, um, you've sat down with everybody. Everybody has figured out what they want to play, who they want to play, and has presumably either figured out a backstory on their own or you sit there and you work out a backstory with them. Cool. Um this is where you start taking notes. You, A thing I always ask my players to do if they have a fairly lengthy backstory is to type it up for me. Yeah, so you can reference on the fly. I just like to keep them in my bag when I'm running personal games. Keep them in a bag or keep them in a dock, however you want to do it. Um, but what's important about that is, is you have that information accessible to you and having those notes accessible. And having those notes accessible is going to make your planning in the future a lot easier. It's At, at first, it's very easy to keep everything that you're doing in your game off the top of your head. It's, it's still very possible in some games to keep it entirely within your head. But I can guarantee you, I will put down $10 right now. Oh. You're going to run a game better if you manage to take notes on what's going on. Um, That's a bet I don't think anyone's going to take me up on because it's, it's pretty obvious. It's a very universal truth. But take some notes. And where that is really going to benefit you is in the mid game, but we're gonna we'll cover that here in a little bit. Um, once you get the initial notes taken, and the, everybody has a set expectation, uh, let's talk about theme really quick. So you once you've established your theme, you know, is, is this game going to be kind of a ha ha light funny game with some serious moments? Is everybody really trying to play it straight? Yeah, what or, are what are the players looking for when they came into this game? You know, establish your theme and just try to remain consistent. That's the best advice I can give you is, you know, every week's going to be a little different. Some people yeah. are going to be in certain moods. Um you're dealing with a live crowd obviously and to some extent. Uh so just you know, try to work with that, but try to keep your game consistent because a game can go off the rails very quick if you don't remain consistent in the approach. People will lose interest, uh, and it's you yeah, know keeping it a consistent be- tone helps with keeping people uh, not necessarily grounded in the universe, but helps get people immersed in the universe. Okay, um, so from there, you know, we've got all that set up for our session zero. Um, I usually like letting them know the initial plot hook. Like this is kind of like. More of a a trailer is a way I like to describe it. Like, yeah, in a world, uh, you know, I give them a trailer of what their first episode, you know, a, a, a brief sneak peek of what's going to be happening in uh, session one. So everybody's like not caught by surprise. They kind of know roughly what's going to happen. You know, they they have like an idea of twenty percent maybe what's going to happen, and then the eighty percent is still behind the screen, and you know, so all the surprises are there. Um, but you get them together. Uh, 
you get the party together. Um, there's various ways to do that. The classic standard is they all meet in a tavern. Uh, but as an a, as an aside, a good way to avoid a lot of early messy problems is just to make sure that the party is all interconnected somehow. Make it, you know during the session zero have the players talk to each other. Yeah, and let's. This is going to be more of a proclamation than they usually do. Try to heavily discourage anybody who wants to play a dangerous loner who doesn't play by anyone's rules because that kind of person needs constant attention to their own background or their own themes to keep interested. Because why would I hang out with these guys? I'm just going to go. I'm going to sit here and not go on this adventure. Try to discourage people from doing that in advance. Right. Uh, so once you have all this stuff set up. And you get your players together, however they're together, however they're friends. Uh, what do you do next? Well, it's plot hook time, baby. Yeah, throw some plot hooks at them. Uh, plot hooks as just as a quick, easy, you know, rule of thumb. If it doesn't work and it doesn't stick, you can try it one more time. If it doesn't stick the second time, just drop it. Just give it up because the players are not going to care. You can make it work a third time if you absolutely have to as in if it's crucial for the plot. But you should try to take like a serious couple session break before trying it again. Yeah. And that's actually a really good time to talk about style of game here. There are two styles of game that are frequently we're, talked about. We're the, obviously dramatically oversimplifying. But. Yes. But there are – you know, there's two ends of the spectrum so to speak. There is the railroad and there is the sandbox. And let's just – Talk about those things really quick. If you read Reddit or Twitter or any forum, railroading is going to be described as the single worst, meanest thing you can do to your players. I'm going to sit here and take a slightly controversial take and say that it's actually not for two reasons. Uh, reason number one, and this is actually the circumstance where railroading does happen and needs to happen. Your players are actively waiting for plot to happen to them. Some parties do not have a single initiative taking bone in their in their body. They want yeah. to react to everything that is thrown at them. And that's fine. That that's is not a bad thing. To play. There are yeah, I've had entire parties where I'm like, okay, what do you guys want to go do now? Um it it can be a bit of a problem from you, but that mean but you're going to as Jake is saying, you're going to have to start setting up some rails for them. And to a degree Every game is going to involve a certain amount of railroading. It's the degree of railroading that's necessary because you can't just plop someone down in an open field and say, there is infinite adventure in every direction. Yeah. Go nuts. You have to eventually try to corral them back to something that's happening. Um, and I mean, we can we can dive into this a little bit deeper uh, with sandbox. If you go with the full sandbox, eventually a plot will develop. And you're going to be able to piece together a plot. And some finely crafted camouflaged rails will start being laid. Yes. Um, you know, you're going to put them back on rails. If you do a really good job, they won't notice the rails are there. But you're going to eventually start leading them back to what's going on. Um, the big thing about running a sandbox game as compared to a railroad game is that in a sandbox game, um, the world is happening actively while without the player involvement. Railroad, um, it's – The world is – 
happening, quote unquote. Yeah, the world them. is happening. Like if they choose to do nothing, stuff will still happen. But it's mostly focused around reacting to the player's actions. Yes, exactly. Um, so with a sandbox, you can still get a good plot. Not saying I'm, you know, I don't want us to be misinterpreted there's, as saying there's completely good. I've run games that are both great sandbox games, and I've run games that are great single focus storyline games. Just because they're different doesn't mean that they're one is better or worse than the other. Right. Um, but the main focus of getting good stuff out of a sandbox game is eventually letting everything that's going on in the world affect them and trickle down to them. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, there is. Yeah, give it give it 10 minutes or so. Uh, but when it sticks. Yeah, sorry. Word salad. Three words try to come out at the same time. Yep. But when it comes back to Are you fucking sorry? When it comes back to this putting everything together and uh, preparing and writing a story, you have to still know what story beats you want to hit. Um, you probably got a villain in place. Uh, if or, you don't have a villain, I really want to know what you're doing. Like, is it just a storm or something is going to hit you? Uh, you know, or a cadre of villains. Uh, they don't have to be aligned. Obviously, people can be shitty people and not be friends. Uh, but. You know, you can have various examples of just, you know, bad things that are happening all in an attempt to sway your players into action. When it comes to writing a story, you're supposed to, you know, like conventional wisdom tells you that you are supposed to start with the ending of a story. That's not possible in this type of storytelling setting because you need the players to inform everything that happens up to that ending. And even I'm going to take a brief aside here and say that even starting in medias race can be a bit disorienting because if you know you your players are you start the game by having your players hanging off the edge of a balcony and you flash back to how did we get here you're going to need some pretty strong rails to get them to that position or things are going to end up pretty different right so with all that being said let's talk about a couple of like neat little fun dm tricks you can use uh to make sure you definitely still get your stuff in and you can influence a plot without um Basically, without whapping their wrists or the ruler whenever they try to do something you haven't pre-approved. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Quantum Ogre because that's actually a very – I don't want to say – it's a contentious topic, yeah, but it's well, something it's, that a lot of DMs end up doing. It's a contentious topic on players because anyone who's ever Game Master understands the necessity of it pretty quickly. The Quantum Ogre is a fairly – I'm not going to say it's a rare topic because it's almost universal. But the term Quantum Ogre is a fairly rare thing to be discussed among most Dungeons & Dragons uh, forums. The Quantum Ogre is a scenario in which you've got an idea that you want to come into place. In this case, the term originates from there's a cool combat the Dungeon Master wants to run with an ogre. And there's four paths out of the town, and no matter which one the players take, the ogre is going to be there. And this is infuriating for players because they feel like their actions don't matter. But Game Masters understand the necessity because always you're going to spend up most of your time designing things that are never going to happen, which as somebody who ha- enjoys that kind of thing, I could get. But a lot of people don't enjoy spending six hours of their day statting out six different encounters just to depend on which direction people go in. Right. But so obviously game masters understand that this thing happens all the time and players are infuriated because they think it negates their um, – Agency. Yeah, their agency. But they can only know if you tell them. Yeah. So the here's the idea and this is where we're really going to get into – 
the big meat of how to make things happen. The mid game of the story, which is the majority. It's basically once you let them out of the tavern or out of the jail, if this is a Elder Scrolls game or, you know, however, Daggerfall. or however they get out into the world. Once you unshackle them and let them out into the world from the intro, congratulations. You're in the mid game until you reach where the campaign is going to end. Uh, and, you know, determine it in how many sessions you plan on this game going, be it ad infinitum until you think you think a ending has been reached. Or if you're all right, guys, we're going to get this done in 30. And I actually mean 40 sessions. <laughs> um, but from there, once you've let them out, congratulations, you now have to hit them with stuff that is going to stimulate and encourage player agency. Um, <clears throat> and what you need to do to guarantee those things is you need to form some sort of attachment. And let's talk about attachment as a kind of vague loose, concept. Yeah, a vague concept. Um, so as a nope. DM, especially of a homebrew setting, okay. uh, you have an inherent, inherent attachment to your world. You've spent a lot of time on it. You've made maps. You, you know, you've made cities. You've developed cultures. Um, you have put so much time, love and effort and care into this little baby that you want everybody to see it and you want everybody to think that your child, your they want you want them to fall in love with it. That's you want probably them to, not going to happen. And, but. Well, they'll love it to an extent. There's, you know, they're going to love parts of your world, but they're not going to love it like you love it. And so simply presenting things to players as just being, you know, check this out. This is badass. Your players are not going to think that's cool as that is. I'm not saying that in a generally sense. I'm saying it is absolutely true that your players are not going to think whatever you think is the bee's knees is the best thing they've ever seen. And they're going to attach themselves to something that you did not put nearly as much thought into as this cool thing you made. Yeah. I'm, well, that's <laughs> that is a very down view on that. I'd, I'd say it's somewhere in the middle. But they are definitely going to take a shine to things that you – either didn't put as much time into, like Paul said, um, or they'll like your stuff, but they're not going to think everything that you do is great. And so the first thing you need to figure out and what you need to figure out going forward to help write your story is what have they uh, what have they grown attached to? Yeah, you want to avoid in the other sense of I, the eight deadly words, I don't care what happens to these people. So you've got to find out what they like first. Yeah, what they like, who they like. You know, you, you we can presume. You know, we're going to say the average party. Um, there's going to be one person who doesn't give a shit about anybody. Um, no, they're just here to make monsters' hit points go down and collect as much money as possible to spend. You know, and then something. other people have a light to mid investment in your campaign setting, and they want to see the campaign setting have good things happen and everybody be happy. Um, you need to figure out what these people are attached to and how to flex that yeah. into a story how to play with those if but. they are attached sorry paul for cutting you off finish your saying. but um if they are attached to say let's say they have grown fond of helping the local noble you've got a large city that you've established they've met the noble after doing something uh there was a party thrown for them let's say that the ogre that mysteriously appeared uh that can teleport between four different paths has been slain my god that ogre appeared no matter where we left the city you vanquished him they threw a ball in your honor bitching all right um they actually grow really attached to the noble because they think he's a cool dude um you know they want to talk to him more well sweet guess what they just gave you a quest giver hey guys i need you to do something for me but i'm willing to pay you quite well for it um you know they 
They have now become attached to the noble. He's doing things for them. They like him. He likes them. This is great. You can play with this bond to do things as a game master that isn't simply, again, throwing down some rails and whapping their hands if they don't yeah. you know, play now, with it. On the flip side – what if they don't like this noble? They think he's too pretentious. Uh, there, you know, there's 18 different reasons they can hate this guy. There and are a lot more reasons people will hate something than they will like something. And they've picked 16 of them as to why they don't like him. And you have deemed him plot important. Um, it's like we talked about earlier with a plot hook. Try it once. Didn't stick. You can try it one more time. Mix it up a little. Throw it out there. Play with it a little bit. You know, maybe a different approach with that character might work a little better. No, they still don't like him. Drop him until he becomes necessary again. And if a character is necessary, but your players don't like him, he can still show up. But you should consider working him to something that they won't, you know, actively have to work with in order to do unless that's the kind of gimmick you're going for. They're an obstructive bureaucrat that you have to deal with. Right. And, uh, and actually Adam brought this up in our comments. If you are listening to this on a VOD by the, uh, if you're, you know, either watching the old videos or you are listening to this on SoundCloud or, uh, Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, uh, Please try to join us every Sunday that we post. We're on a biweekly schedule. Next show should be on the 28th of April. Um, Join us. Talk to us on the Facebook Live comments. We love hearing you guys and we like interacting with you. So Adam actually brought up something about adding character backstories into the campaign, uh, which we addressed a little bit at the top of the show, but is actually now is a good time to dive back in. So – why don't you read what Adam said? So, so we can. what are your guys' opinions on adding characters' backstories into the campaign? As a DM who regularly does this and is willing to change parts of the homebrew setting to match their ideas, I find that it helps build commitment. Yes, oh, yeah. 100%. that is one hundred percent what I do. You shouldn't have to crowbar it in, but if you need to, you know, push a couple things in a couple directions to make it work. By all means. But the comment that actually segues perfectly in what we talk about with NPCs and backstories is the trope of killing everything that's important to players. This is a, a quick and dirty lever that – it does sound kind of mean to say this, but novice game masters will often kill, ransom, or torture NPCs in player character backstories as sort of cheap drama. So this is – I don't like saying this is bad. This is a bad thing to do because it, it quickly will lead to your player characters in the future being slaughter vagrants spawned from eggs with no noticeable background connections. And then you don't have anything to pull on. They refuse to get connected. To yeah. Anything. If a player has a family that play, you know, and hey, yeah, uh, well, I'll use my first character. Uh, we'll use Gabriel Waterloo. Hi, my name is Gabriel Waterloo. A paladin from the town of Fallcrest. Wow, I butchered my own intro. Damn. Um, he had parents who were dairy farmers. And I remember saying, hey, you know, because our characters had downtime. I'm like, hey, I'm going to go back to my home, which is one city away. Say hi to my parents. One of the other players immediately started screaming, you know, the city's going to be on fire and they're going to be dead, right? They were fine. They were fine. <laughs> hey, your son made it. He's a, uh, you know. I'm living large in the city and I got a lot of people who like me. I got some money. You can sell a farm. You can go retire in the city. You ain't got to you ain't got to work on cows no more. They died peaceably in their old age surrounded by their grandchildren. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they had a good life. Um, and more so, you don't need to – everything – well, everything is a potential – I want to word this very carefully. Everything is a potential emotional reaction that you can do to a player. But not the easy one should be given away. Don't, don't – again, it's, it's a lever you can pull when necessary. But – quickly loses its drama if it's pulled every time. Yes. Um, NPC and attachment 
Um, if you're, if somebody is going to die and I want to, again, I want to word this very diplomatically because this is a contentious topic to say the least. Yeah. Some people, you know, um, I don't want to like name names. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to like demonize this community as being full of people who are noble bright. Um, adventure zone, the adventure zone community collectively lost its shit when spoilers, um, 10 seconds for anybody who, you know. Put your fingers. Put your fingers in your. Put ears your fingers again. in your ears. Ready? Okay. When Johan died, Johan died, and spoilers off. Everybody lost their collective fucking minds on Reddit and Twitter for a little bit. Um, it was very outspoken as to why did it need to happen. It, as far as like from somebody who can appreciate you know the storytelling and what they were going for, it actually really, really, really uh, helped drive the plot forward and gave purpose. And meaning it definitely raised the stakes and put players in a dire situation. It was an effective NPC kill. Um, you shouldn't just have a, a the villain off a player character's family because they can. That's again cheap shock value as opposed to actual pulling on the narrative levers. Yeah. Um, and so what you want to do with this attachment back to this whole attachment angle is you want to find um, who the players are attached to, build meaningful relationships, and then have Once logical – Once time to ripen, yeah. then you can pull on the strings and hopefully not kill them. But you can do whatever you need to do in order to raise the they, – They have a lot more – it has a lot more effect though. Uh, uh, yeah. Just as a really quick thing, Paul, like had I – let's say you know in that hypothetical, my paladin went back to his hometown – and, you know, everything that Mike had screamed about had come true. You know, goblins had burned the city down. My parents' heads were on stakes. Um, I would have been a little upset, but my parents hadn't been fleshed out as characters. So it'd be like, oh, no, you oh, killed no. my family. My family's dead. I better avenge them. It. It's This is something else like I said that is a lot more contentious is that – while killing and wounding and, you know, ransoming and maiming characters is a tried and true method of raising the stakes, I would honestly say have it be a 50-50 mix of good things and bad things happening to your uh, the and species they're attached to because otherwise the constant bad things happening will quickly get your players down. Yeah, unless you're in a setting – unless you're in a world where terrible things happen all the time. Or in a universe like World Warhammer uh, 40K, you yeah, know, where just it's, bad things happen to good people like, all the time. It, instead of the the town drunk who your characters are attached to inevitably getting kidnapped or beaten up by the villains, have them strike it rich really suddenly. Yeah, that's a cool thing to happen to Baxter, and they'll be happy for him. And you know, he can mess things up and throw his money around, and the players will be happy for him and try to get some of that money, probably. You know, and you hit that uh, when you definitely take a look at how to re-rope some of these characters that they like and, you know, and you're like, okay, well, shit, they like having, you know, we'll use your town drunk, you know, and we'll call him Dusty, all right? Uh, they, they've fallen in love with Dusty. They helped Dusty. They, they cleaned him up. They went out and they got him ready for a job appointment or whatever and, and they left and they, you know, went and did some other adventures. They came back and Dusty the hobo still hasn't found work, but the party has just bought a tavern because they are rolling in fat loots and they decided to buy a tavern. Well, guess who comes strolling through the door? Hey, y'all. Here you're hiring. Um, you know, great. They now have an NPC that can watch the bar while they're away. They're already attached to him and they get to see him. And when the time's right, whoever they've decided to piss off um, can attempt to affect Dusty in 
Yeah, whatever way you want break to. his legs as a message or something break his know. legs as a message uh let's say you've got a more bureaucratic person well this person isn't licensed with the uh, bartenders guild and he is going to i'm afraid you're going to have to fire him yep um you know there are different ways that you can uh you know there are yep. different ways you can affect that character you just have to build attachment and you have to find out what they've become attached to i think we've beaten this horse nearly <laughs> to death so let's wrap it up good and, things and bad things should happen to your npcs that your players are attached to try to avoid the all consuming darkness of only bad things happening all the time yeah um and let's and yeah. also you need to obviously play with the characters that your players are attached to rather than the ones that you want them to be attached to. Right. Now let's talk about uh, the opposite effect that you're trying to go for and that is with your villains and that is uh, getting hatred. Um, and more so in a way it's very similar to attachment. A good villain is somebody who when you're at the table – you want to kick the dog shit out of them, but when you're away from the table yeah, – Yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah, that's a pretty cool villain. Um and again, this comes back to that initial thing we were talking about. Uh, you can sit down. We actually had a very – in the car, we had a very good conversation. For anybody who's familiar with Mass Effect, a good example of somebody who did a lot of the things we just talked about is Kai Lang. Um, Kai Lang, if you're unfamiliar with Mass Effect, is basically this uh, – He's a cyborg ninja in an otherwise fairly grounded science fiction game. Yeah, he's a cyborg ninja who's also a racist and hates aliens and is just super easy to hate. But when he shows up and, you know, there's definitely a feeling, oh, my God, he's so fucking cool when you initially see him, um, even though it's, you're just like – The writers are clearly trying to get you to think he's super cool and it, it falls a little flat. It falls opinion, a little flat but, at first. But there is a moment that we – I think we came to an agreement on, Paul, where – spoilers, but I'm not going to – This is spoilers from a game from 2014. So. Yeah. So sorry. Um, when he kills Thane, um, at that point that, – That generates some serious anger towards him, but it doesn't admittedly help the fact that – whatever. I'm going to drop that for now, but – yeah, um, but he generates some good heat. He generates good heat to use a wrestling term. He generates, you know, enough hatred that suddenly, you know, I see him and you want to put your powered armored boot through his fucking face. Yeah. And I don't have to like his motivation. I like I still look back at Kai Lang and I'm like, meh, he's OK. But at least I had drive and motivation to hate him. Um, so creating a decent enough reason for your players to hate your villain is all you need. I'm, you know, like, let's not bullshit ourselves here. We're all not going to write, you know, the greatest, you know, fiction villain of all time. We all try. We all put in a lot of work, but we are not going to sit down and write the most memorable villain that people have run into. Instead, rely on a couple of things to try to get you through. Yeah. Use some tropes. Do not be afraid of tropes when it comes to general writing. Um, I would say go so far as to – you can straight up copy a character if you really need to and if it's obscure enough. Yeah, or you can you know copy and change three different things about him. You know, uh, name. Uh, you can change name, gender, and then maybe like a motivator. Yeah. But otherwise have them physically, you know, or like the things they do resemble if you're going for a certain striking visual. I was thinking visual. of like a, a Ron in the Black Cauldron book. But. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to – generating um you know this this hatred of what a player you know that you're trying to get out of your players because they're not going to care about the villain if they don't actively want to kick his ass yeah you know in a poorly run game they're just like well i guess we have to go stop him because that's what we're trying to do you want to avoid that um do not be afraid to drop a villain like a bad habit if he's not 
generating interest. Yeah. Um, because after all, being a criminal means that there's usually – if you're the head of a criminal enterprise – you're probably going to get off by another gang boss. Yeah, or some somebody point. under you. It's, uh, you know, living a living that evil life typically doesn't Yeah, your last players long. definitely don't have to like the villain, but they need to be able to generate effective hatred. Yeah. So if, you know, it goes back to the plot hook thing. If it doesn't stick, get rid of them. Um you can, you know, you can try different tactics with somebody from under them. Uh somebody, for example, who and this is probably going to generate a little bit of heat for myself. Um, in Fallout New Vegas, I found Kaisar or Caesar to just be – like I thought he was interesting, but I, I was very bored by him um, because – I'll hold my tongue on that one. No, you know, it, I mean – Again, it, I, I think – again, I think he and his group of cosplaying <laughs> – you know, jocks were kind of losers and the real conflict was between House – and independent Vegas and uh, what's called oh, fuck, the NCR and and again that Roman cosplayers were more of a <laughs> big looming threat that you'd have to deal with in the future, not an actual faction to back. Yeah, um, but uh, but but bleh, 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 getting you're to, saying, getting you're probably to the getting point to though. like Lanius is my exactly. Guess, but, I found Len, uh, I found Lanius to be much more. Uh, inspiring of hatred because when you talk to Caesar sure he does the thing that all villains are supposed to be. he's supposed to have a reason you know and he's he's a fucking he's got a good he's got a good reason he's you. understandable um he has chartable motive um and you know in his own eyes he sees himself as the hero which hey yeah nobody plays the villain in their own story and he was voice acted well and everything I'm not you know he just kind of fell flat for me Lanius Inspired a lot more up for the entire game, and he actually lives up to it, which is yeah. a pretty rare accomplishment. I yeah, his uh, yeah, no, I remember hitting him with the giant space laser, and then just seeing him walk out of it like, like nothing happened. Fuck! No, that is literally what I said. I was like, oh shit, um, you know, don't be afraid to. <laughs> this long winded conversation about Fallout, and we're not a Fallout podcast, uh, leads me back to the point of don't be afraid to change up your villain. Um, or put out another villain in there. Have yeah. them work, you know, have them work under and, that main villain. And to say something else is another way to generate heat is your characters need to at some point, and this is a personal opinion. I've run lots of games where this never happened, and I do honestly think the game's probably worse for it is. At some point, the players should probably either lose or fall behind the villain in some capacity, because that is one of the easiest ways to generate, again, some hatred from your players is have the villain beat them to something. Otherwise, they quickly become ineffectual, like, you know, Bowser. You know yeah. he's going to lose. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's where we get back. To, you you have to definitely prove that they are capable. Um, and you also got to work with what the players and the dice give you. Um, a player dying at the hands of something that this master villain has orchestrated. Is, that's a really good way to generate heat. Oh, but it's, it's a, also kind of a dick move. If, it's a hell of a motivator if you're not going for it. Um, you know, <laughs> Uh, personal hatred is a hell of a motivator. Don't have him, you know, Vince McMahon walk into the room and body check one of your PCs into the wall, killing them instantly. It needs to be more organic than that. Yeah. Um, but it can definitely, uh, you know, I, I guess a good example of everything that we've talked about to this point would be something along these lines. Let's say that in a fairly exploration uh, heavy game, uh, there is a small village that your party has been coming back to. Frequently, yeah. uh, you know, they they like the tavern owner. They, you know, like one or two other minor NPCs that are in the town. It's a town of about 70 people. Um, they like to 
put their heads down there and yeah, cool. You know, it's a, it's our little spot and it's conveniently centralized. Uh, once you know your players are attached to it, uh, let's say that the villain in this example is somebody running a cult to Vecna. They are trying to get the eye in the hand and they are going to robocop that son of a bitch back together. Uh, so one of his underlings has gone to this town looking for, uh, looking for, you know, some information and he gets his information and, um, for reasons that won't be explained because the players are going to walk into this mess, um, has butchered, let's say half exactly half. I was going to say, uh, there's just 10 people left. One of them is one of the NPCs. Uh, one of the other NPCs has gone missing. Um, and one of the NPCs is dead. Um, in this situation now they have motive. They want to probably get revenge if you've done everything right. And you can use the survivors to build a fast, uh, fascinating description of this cultist this villain. Yeah. This villain, um, who isn't even like the main threat. He's just a minor villain. Yeah. And it, this is something I want to interject is don't kill everybody. Your players are attached to because that quickly becomes bleak. Kill again, 80% of them. If you really have to prove a point from the villain. <laughs> Yeah, um, but no, you know, and even I think 80 percent's a bit much. I yeah, think it's just, right. you know, it's and this is two or three. This is probably is, good. this isn't a fair thing to say because it's I don't think it's really helpful, but it's true. Um, Storytelling is a muscle. You're going to yeah. develop a feel for it. The more you do it. We're kind of throwing vague terms at you. So bear with us. Yeah. Um. Just, you know, do what feels right. But know that if you overuse something or you just take away everything that the players love, then they're just going to, again, quickly like, sink into apathy. Yep. Uh, sink into apathy and just, you know, not give a shit. OK, well, I'm not going to, you know, interact with your NPCs because you're just going to kill it. You know, um, you want them to interact and care about your world and you want them to want to, you know, if you're running a good campaign, protect the world. Um you know, and there's we can talk about evil campaigns and a whole other fucking can of worms. But I think we get the idea. Yeah. Um, I do think that keeping the villain a, a potent threat while also simultaneously allowing your PCs to win and have enough of their allies survive is a, a complicated balancing act at the best of times, especially because it's so easy in role-playing games to fall into the trap of the PCs beating the villain every time or the PCs feeling like they had no actual chance to yeah. contest the villain. That is that is just a minor other little thing though too is uh, for the love of God, DMs, just tell your players that, hey, consider running from every encounter you run into. It's – actually, no. That's Now's a good time to talk about that because there's there are three pillars. Players don't run from combat. <laughs> there are three uh, – there are three pillars of this game. And we need to talk about how they can be used in storytelling. That's that, It's a mildly good se segue. Yeah, I can't talk. Damn. Okay. Let's talk about – The three pillars. The three the pillars. Combat, role-playing, and exploration. We've already talked about role-playing pretty heavily here. This is how – you know, talking to NPCs, making friends, loving them, loving them NPCs, loving the world, stuff like that. Cool. Let's talk about exploration. Exploration as a narrative device um, allows you to introduce very interesting things if you allow the players to stumble onto it. This is where we come back to the railroading thing because yeah. uh, you can you know you can have that big old empty map and go oh these are all empty spaces and this is where Quantum Ogre pops back up. Um, conveniently enough, when you needed it to happen, they wandered upon that dungeon that you really needed them to go into to 
trigger the next phase of your plot. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing, although some people might think it is. It's just sort of a problem that you're going to have to address if you want to run any kind of game. Yeah. Exploration in a nutshell is finding new places and things. So I really see a more of a bridge to the other two aspects of gameplay, which is combat and role-playing. Yep. It's a sort of um, – Wow, this is going to sound really rude, so let me tone that down. I was going to say a loading screen of role-playing games. I was, I, I, if we look at everything all together, I think it's literally 45, 45, and 10. Some games, obviously ones with lots of rangers and druids and other outdoorsmen, might spend a lot more time exploring. And if you want to do scenic vistas explaining things. But I I feel like role-playing is not necessarily the best way to do a, a lot of Explore. showing weird things because – Exploration. Uh, again, a picture – yeah, exploring weird places and things because a picture can show a thousand words and you're not going to belt out a thousand words at your players. Right. Um, and that's actually a good point to make too. I like to use the Michael Bay analogy. Um, it's the same with exploration as it is with the other stuff. Um, if you think something is really cool, doesn't mean your players are going to give a shit about it. If you put uh, big set pieces in front of them and look – you know, and make them – Take a look and go. See, isn't this badass? Isn't it great? If they, if it don't doesn't care, yeah, if they don't care, then they don't care. They are going to form their own attachment and, um, you know, figure out what they want to see. This is where sandboxing um, can be very helpful because if you have a full map and you have some places where it's like, okay, somewhere in here is the lost ruin of X, Y, and Z, and a couple of players go, "Yo, that sounds badass. Can we check it out?" Cool. All right, go find it. Sweet. Um, uh, this burns time in the game, which is another important concept to consider, is that everything should be happening at all times, even when the players are off in the dungeon. Yeah, the players may be the focus of the world, and don't forget that because that's important. But it shouldn't seem like to the player characters that they are the only important things happening in the world. Yeah. The uh, But on the flip side, you know, let's say this villain that they have ignored the plot hook on twice and – but. Damn it, you really want this vampire. This is very important. This this vampire becoming big is an important plot element for the rest of the game, damn it. Yep. Um, They're okay. going to keep doing stuff even. They're not going to sit there with their fingers in the doomsday buttons waiting for the heroes to show up. They're going to do things. Exactly. And so just allow your players to, yeah, sure, go fuck off and check off the temple of X, Y, and Z. Don't care. Um, meanwhile, my villains and everybody else is going to advance. Uh it's a perfectly reasonable and a actually encouraged way of doing things. Villain doesn't always need to be present for him to be a threat. Yeah. Um, let's move on to combat and getting good story out of combat. Well, because it is, it's honestly, it's what eighty percent of your character sheet yeah, is about. It's unfortunate. Well, I don't want to say unfortunately, but Dungeons and Dragons is a game that's very much focused around its combat. Um, if you're not going to be using a lot of combat, you should probably be playing a system other than Dungeons and Dragons. Again, as Jake just said, 80% of the stuff on your sheet is combat-related. So how can we squeeze as much story as possible into this such this this huge part of the game? Um, I, I have a couple of points. Uh, first of all, no pointless fights. And what I mean by a pointless fight is literally a combat to have a combat. We go Random back to, encounters on the road are something that should be used extremely sparingly in my um, experience. The only time that a... Okay, this is – let me just get my feelings on a random encounter out of the way. A random encounter is a good thing to have if the players are doing some exploring. You're planning out yeah, slightly – Yeah, it's indicating that this isn't completely deserted. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, it's also a good way to ramp up tension and make them burn through resources if you're in a dungeon or things of that nature. But as far as a plot element, just like, okay, you guys walked outside and five Kenku attack you. Okay. Why are they doing this? They kill the Kenku. Okay. Was there any notes on their body? Nope. Uh, was there anything that tells us why they were doing it? Nope. Eight. They're just jerks. They're just dicks and they were just trying to kill you. Um, That's something to avoid, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, just avoid very pointless combat. But like back back to our quantum ogre here. Uh, if you design a fight, by God, you're going to use it. Probably. Yeah. Well, if you try to, as long as you're trying to. Uh, but if you use, let's say, this ogre. Okay, well, cool. What? plot does that what do we get out of this ogre um not only in terms of what he his relevance is going to be to the world around him in terms of like him being a threat for the town obviously and him being a threat to the players physically but what story can we wring out of can the we actual, extract from this can we extract out of the fight let's say that the fighter uh did a very on brand thing for a fighter to do and ran up to the ogre and much like the ogres in Sekiro, the ogre power bombed him because God damn it. No, the, the ogres in Sekiro do that and they just use pro wrestling moves and all ogres in my campaign setting now use pro wrestling moves done. Um, but power bombed, he power bombed your fighter into oblivion. Okay, cool. What are we able to extract from this? Ogres are scary. Ogres are a scary and B, um, even though the fighter might have healed up that Injury might be a lasting injury. You might kind of float that out there that the fighter um, is suffering some lingering pain and might have to go to the healer. Something else to think about, and this is, again, to get back to the cheap heat thing. If this ogre was, say, hired by your main villain, this would indicate to you that the villain is capable of throwing such resources around and is scary enough to keep these monsters in check. Yeah. Um, As far as within the fight itself, too, there is just – there's a whole lot of narrative things that you can add to players that add to their story. Scars, broken limbs. Um, I am, I don't Even know. On the light end of things, there's fame. People saw you do it. Yep. Uh, it, you know, setting, uh, when it comes to a combat, you know, it's, it's much like a story, but it's still, it's, you know, the setting, who's around, what's there to witness it, um, and what is the main thing that you're trying to get across with that combat. With this ogre fight, um, we're going to establish three things. That ogre is scary. Um, that ogre will power bomb you into the dirt hard. It will hurt. And it's going to hurt. And three, that ogre is, and as Paul just threw into the narrative, uh, has been paid off. And, and who paid them off and why? You can suddenly now with the combat, uh, by having some of the chatter that's being thrown out by the ogre in combat, you can influence the story. Boom, bang, done, easy. So let's wrap up. A couple of final things because we got about 15 minutes. Yeah, about 15 minutes here. So let's get to a couple right. other little bits that I want to talk about. Let's talk about writer's block. All right, a bit of a switch there, but it's something worth talking about, definitely. Yeah, there was writer's, no smooth transition. There's just Writer's block is a perennial problem, to say the least. Uh, I'm suffering from it right now. It's we're, We can't exactly give you a one-size-fits-all solution to writer's block or somebody smarter than us would have told everyone already. But we can give you some suggestions. That's what we're going to do. Um, really quickly though, because Adam did bring it up in the comments. Um, if I'm going to highly res- recommend any pro wrestler to give a ogre's move set to look up Kevin Nash wrestling moves. That's now that it's, it's perfect. It's, it's perfect. So <clears throat> here are my tips for beating writer's block. Everybody has their own ways. Uh, this is what I've always found works for me. Um, and that is 
going back to my notes, going back to my character backstories, going back to every shred of paper and documentation that I have. And you should be taking notes or I'm, I can't, I'm not your mother. I can't tell you, but <laughs> it will help a lot if you take notes on stuff that's going on. Oh, also just a quick, cheap, easy idea. You know, it's a great way to take notes without having to take notes. Giving inspiration to the player who takes very detailed notes. Oh, yeah. And then copying them. Later. And then just, yep, and then just copying them later. Um, I've had a couple of players do that where I'm just, uh, hey, if you take notes for me this session, you get a, I'll give you inspiration right now. And they're like, ooh, yes. Players are easily swayed with shinies. <laughs> anyway, um, you're saying. Anyways, examine all your notes. Lay everything out in front of you and just look at it and try to see what you're missing. Um See, try to think of what the obvious next step would be for your villain. Um, it, it may not come easily to you, obviously, because you're suffering writer's block, but it should be obvious in retrospect what the next move will be. And you're really not going to like this part, but um, I know. So let's say you're stuck and OK, well, let's go back to this instance of that. they The party has tracked down that cult guy, right? Not the leader, but the guy who messed up their beloved small town. We'll call it Appleton. They make apples. Okay. Great. Um, they've tracked down that guy and they've, they've killed Pistol him. whipped him for yep, 46 straight hours. Yep. They've done everything. They've gotten everything they needed off, to, off of him. And now you're a little stuck because you were really hoping that they would just torture him. And they were like, nope, we just put a dagger into his head. Okay. You're a little stuck now. Well, you take a look and you realize, okay, so what's cult leader going to think about this? And you finally think about it and you're like, yeah, well, he's just going to attack him. He's just going to attack the party. And then you sit back and this is my advice to you. Try to think of three or four different takes that they could have, even if you're having writer's block or even if you're not. Um, you can definitely come up – your first idea is not always your best idea. Unless your character is obviously super impulsive, but that should be a rarity. That's a very different thing. Um yeah, consider multiple options for every step you yeah, take with that. What would the major villain do in response to this? Yeah, and just same thing in general for your writer's block. Um, consider Try to consider like four or five options, mull them over, weigh it over. You know, like I've found that if I'm sitting there and I'm staring at all my stuff and I got all the information in my head and nothing's coming, okay, cool. I'll go take a walk. I'll go take a shower. You know, I've had uh, – my sister lives in the room next to the bathroom and I pity her because there's a couple of times I'll just shout, that's what I'm going to fucking do. Um. I, I wanted to add also to this while we're on this topic is there's a great uh, bit of suggestion from the Exalted Game Mastering books um, with super intelligent villains. And this is also something you can do with just regularly very intelligent villains, far more intelligent than you personally are. Um your actions don't always need to make logical sense and you can always cheat and have them retroactively have known about this in advance because of how clever they are. Yeah, if they have an intelligence 26, congratulations. They're smart. They, they just – they. I knew you'd say that. Yeah. Um, OK. A uh, couple other little things too on writer's block. Do not be afraid to let characters influence creation. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Let your players do the lifting for you. This is – yeah, if you're really stuck, then – it's honestly, it's because I've had, I've done this for a couple, I've done this for a couple of sessions when I'm just like, okay, I'm stuck and I'll show up and we'll set up and I'll let everybody recap the game and then you just throw it into their hands and you go, okay, what are you guys doing now? And you let them advance and do what things you want to do until suddenly, ha, there's something you can work with. Yeah. And then you leap on that, obviously. Yep. Um, let's see. Other things. 
we wanted to really cover before we wrap up here because we're we're running on a couple. We're 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 getting pretty close here to the edge of this topic. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's obviously a lot more we can talk about, but there are people who've written far better stories than I ever have, and they've given better advice than I ever can. Well, damn, that's a pretty dim. I know view. it's a little dark, but um, I'm no Shakespeare. Okay, jeez, give yourself a little bit of credit, bub. Um, okay, I guess final thoughts here. As we close up this thought process. On the writer's here, block? On the writer's block, yeah. Uh, there's, there's something to be said also for, and this is going to sound like the least helpful advice you've ever heard. There's also always just sort of brute forcing your way through it and just beating your head against the wall and just writing stuff that you think will happen. Yeah, perspiration instead of inspiration is a hell of a drug too. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we have to cover as far as the storytelling episode goes? Well, I mean, other than the obvious ones with uh, – the working with what your players give you and what you've got rather than what you were expecting and also how long you should plan for a game to go and storytelling based around that. Yeah. I think uh, the neat little bow to put on this episode as we wrap up here is going to be this. Um, let your players – or I guess let me make a speech here. Slides dramatically in front of the camera. Hit me. Your players in this very unique medium of storytelling – are going to have the camera lens on them most of the time. You are going to sit there and you are coming up with stuff for your players to interact with and to challenge them and to shape worldview and to shape player action and dynamic. Um, using everything that your players presents you is going to be the best way that you can get to the ending. And that's what we're about to talk about is how to end. See, see what I did there? Clever. Yes, I did. Not that clever. Okay. But no, let's talk about how to wrap up a campaign. Um, your players have done everything that you wanted to. Um, they have kicked down the front door to the villain's lair. You finally gotten them there. They've either gone of their own accord or you've thrown down the rails. You've thrown down the rails a little bit, but damn it. This is the story you were trying to tell too. It is also about your fun. Try, try. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. Don't forget, of course, that you're supposed to be having fun at this game too. Yeah, but let's not worry about that. Um, wrapping up loose plot threads, it should be very. Try not to Deus Ex Machina them and, and just have them. Oh, and suddenly the subplot was resolved off screen. Yeah. You can have a Denouement episode. Yeah. After all this, and wrap up some other minor plot threads without ruining the total climax of the game. Yeah, my brain just broke for a second, but now I'm back. Um, yeah, a. Post-campaign session is always a lot of fun, uh, just as another thing to do. They've beaten the bad guy. They've saved the day. Um, you know, credits roll, and everyone's like, cool, yeah, that's it's over. Um, I highly recommend doing an extra session afterwards just to um, – Where are they now? Yeah, where are they now, five years from now? Um, give everybody a bit of a wrap-up. Um, if you don't have the time to fit it into that normal session or, you know, if you want to spend an hour and a half wrapping up what everybody does um, – and figuring out what the next step for the next game is if you guys want to play another game. The hard part about ending a campaign neatly where it can get a little tricky is, again, is trying to tie up all these loose plot threads. Um, I'm here to tell you that just actually focus on the main action at hand. Um, one of my favorite analogs for the ending of a story but not the ending of what's going on is the French Revolution. Because if you listen, there's been a bajillion documentaries about it. There's been, uh, you know, so many books. Much said about it, said Much said, enough said about the French Revolution. Um, and 
it always ends like once, you know, democracy is taking place. And then it just cuts to black. That's because no one wants to put the awkward. Yeah, because that's the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because then otherwise there'd be that awkward subtitle of 15 years later. They got an emperor in power. Um, the point is, though, do not be afraid to just like don't feel like you have to wrap everything up. Um, letting things float out there in your world is a brilliant way to have, say you have a new player coming in, but you've got two vets who've already played in your setting and played a campaign with you and you got a new player coming in. Well, cool. Then they know some of the stuff that's going on. And so when you bring back up the, like, honestly, this is why I love having Clint around when I run games. Cause now that Clint's been around in enough games and you too, Paul, um, usually I'll mention something. And then if I got two new players there, they obviously they're like, well, their eyes glaze over. Yeah, they're, oh, what the hell is that? But Clint is there uh, to go, oh, shit, that's not good. And Paul is there to go, yeah, no, that's probably not good. Um, That's probably a bad sign. Feel free to leave open plot threads because it will influence future stories. Don't feel like everything has to end with a neat bow um, at the end of the game. And with that. I think we're about done, Paul. I think we've yeah, sounds about right to me. I think we've squeezed all the juice out of this fruit that we can for storytelling. Um, thanks for watching the episode, guys. We really enjoyed talking about it. There was a, this one's a lot of fun. It was very esoteric. It was uh, a lot of thinking, yeah, uh, and and condensing down to what we meant to say. So. Yeah, and definitely a lot of uh, blubbering on what we don't say. Uh, so, if you enjoyed the show. Please head over to Facebook.com slash 3DMs Podcast. Uh, give us a like. Uh, if you got other D&D friends or new DMs who are trying to learn how to play the game or you just – Please look, recommend them. Yeah, please. You know, please recommend us to them. Whoa. Yeah. We're getting there, Paul. A lot of word salad. Uh, if you want to hear what we're doing actively, uh, me and Clint are running the Twitter. That's right. The ghost from our past, Clint, has taken over our Twitter um, along with me and we're actually tweeting actively now. So – uh, head over to twitter.com slash three underscore DMS underscore pod. Um, follow us there. Uh, I've been ranting a lot about Sekiro lately, and also it's great storytelling potential. There's a lot of cool shit from that game that I'm stealing to use in future campaigns. Pro Wrestling Ogres and Dragon Rot. Dragon Rot is cool. Um, also, ninjas that die twice. Uh if you want, if you have an idea for a future show topic, or you just want to chat with us, um, in on the Twitter we have a link to our Discord. Um, pop in, we've left it open so people can come hang out. I'm making in now that I've got my computer back and everything. I'm making an attempt to hang out there more often. Um, and if you want to see something on the show, message us. Let us know what you want to hear, and we'll let you know if we've already talked about it or we'll do a damn show on it because we're running out of stuff. This is episode 47. Episode 48. We're going to figure out in the car ride home because we don't have any immediate good ideas for yep. show topic. So um, with that, fellas, ladies, people, boys and girls from around the world, I'm Jake. I'm Paul. And this has been 3DMs. Thanks for joining us. We love you. Have a good weekend. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hmm.